What do you want? May I have you bags, madame? Why? He's a porter. He wants to carry them. Why? Why should you carry other people's bags? Well, that's my business, madame. That's no business. That's social injustice. That depends on the tip. Allow me, comrade. No, no, thank you. How are things in Moscow? Very good. The last mass trials were a great success. There are going to be fewer but better Russians. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we finished our last Ernst Lubitsch film ever for this project with Ninochka, one of the 1939 nominees. He done done it to us again, Susan. <laughs> I feel like I have three entirely different reactions to this movie that do not coalesce into one feeling. I feel the exact same way. I spent a large portion of the last third of this movie trying to figure out how I would feel about this movie if I didn't know about Ernst Lubitsch. Like, would I like it better or worse? (laughs) I feel like for me, I would have liked it worse. I would have thought that it was a worse movie because the big thing for me, the big problem for me with this movie is that it is one where the guy who stalks the girl gets the girl by stalking her. Right. And it's just kind of the classic Ernst Lubitsch, the girl changes for the guy because of his no discernible skills. No actual reason. (laughs) Not having, what's his face? Uh, Maurice Chevalier. Yeah, not having Maurice Chevalier in the role of the guy who the girl changes for, for no discernible reason, was a drawback. Because as much as I want to punch Maurice Chevalier in the face, he does have a certain intrinsic charm. Whereas I didn't feel that way about our lead here. And I felt like some of the lines that he had that are supposed to be quite funny, they didn't land. But then on the other hand, I thought that the clever lines in this movie were quite a bit more clever than anything that we'd seen in an Ernst Lubitsch film before. I laughed like a number of times and not just at the beginning. (laughs) Greta Garbo was phenomenal. Yes, I agree that she's great. I think that, like, this movie does the thing that I actually like Ernst Lubitsch doing for more of its runtime than any movie that we have watched of his. Yeah. It is a class comedy for longer than any of his other comedies, where that was always kind of the best thing about all of them in retrospect was sort of skewering nobility and rich people and the idea of the upper crust. This does that and also manages to get a pretty good mix of getting some good knocks in on the actual USSR without, outside of our central romance, really implicating communism. It is really smart, except for the part where it's a the movie that it is. Like, except for the romance. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I did feel like the movie had a pretty, if not totally accurate view on communism and on the USSR and on Russian cultural mores at the turn of the 20th century. It was fairly balanced. Ninochka never really gives up communism. She is still wholeheartedly a Bolshevik. She just gives up the USSR 
it's made very clear that this is a Stalinist time. And I think it's pretty fair to be like, yeah, Stalinist Russia was like not amazing for anybody. Yeah. <laughs> Except for Stalin, I guess. <laughs> he was probably having a good time, but. Yeah. It's also very smart about, one, the ways that capitalism and capital are seductive with this sort of like bumbling trio who sort of have this initial, we should probably do the plot. Yeah, let's do the plot. Let's do the plot and then we'll get there. (laughs) There are these three Russian agents whose names are kind of unimportant because they kind of are just doing a little bit of a Three Stooges shtick. Aronoff, Bolzhanov, and Kapolsky. Yes. But they arrive in Paris because they're trying to sell off jewelry from the Russian Revolution because... Russia needs money. They aren't going to have enough food next year, and they need tractors and other infrastructure for farming. So they're trying to sell off this jewelry. The jewelry belongs to... Belonged. Belonged to (laughs) the Grand Duchess Swana, which, like, I had the tense confusion because... This sort of legal plot argument around this MacGuffin is whether that was confiscated legally or not. Right. Does it belong to the state because the revolution won, or does it still belong to the Grand Duchess because it was her personal property? This is actually the first moment in the movie where I was like, wait, this is an inaccurate portrayal of the Soviet approach to property. Because they go like, oh, well, it belongs to everybody because everything everyone owns belongs to everyone. And that actually was not the case. So like real property, meaning physical land, or I guess homes as well, things that we call real estate in the US, that's private property, personal property you were allowed to keep. Now, if you're a deposed monarch, like, eh, I guess all your stuff belongs to the state if you run away. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of took that to be more a propaganda thing than an actual statement of fact. Because the, like, bit with Ironoff, Bolzhanov, and Kapalsky is that they know the rhythms and they know the idea of what they're supposed to say, but they have no real ideological grounding in Bolshevism, and so they just immediately abandon it upon the first, like, convenient moment. And they're very good at making justifications for why their abandonment is actually still in line with Bolshevism and with party ideology. That's a pretty standard critique in Soviet satire is that, oh, well, you can always make anything fall within the party boundaries if you know how to justify it enough. For instance, they've got to go stay at a hotel and one of them is like, well, we have to stay at the cheap hotel because we're of the people. And the other two talk him into staying in the royal suite of the finest hotel in Paris because it has the biggest safe to keep the jewels and that's protecting the people's property. Yes. And my favorite bit about that is that the third guy then immediately goes, well, we could split the jewelry up into smaller packages that could be just kept in the vault of the hotel and not take the royal suite. And the other two guys just stare at him and he goes, well, it's an idea. And they go, yes, but who said we need an idea? (laughs) And like... (laughs) (laughs) This sort of first 30 minutes of, like, really until our title character and our romantic lead meet is the strongest run of the film, in my opinion. It has a very Marx Brothers kind of feel to it. It's very snappy. It's funny. Yes. 
Anyway, to get back to the both the plot and the Marx Brothersiness of it, the Grand Duchess who is trying to claim this jewelry is hooking up with our male lead, Count Alexis Rockinon. Rockinon? Boy, they just call him the Count for basically the entire movie. No, it's Count Leon. Oh, right, right. Count Alexis Rockinon, he's a Russian nobleman who is working as a waiter in the hotel, which is how she finds out about it. Leon... Count Leon is her boyfriend. Right. Boy toy. (laughs) It is so confusing that that waiter is a count, because then there's a part later in the film where you think that's going to come up again, and then that is not actually what seems to have happened. The implication instead seems to be that the cigarette girls stole the stuff. Anyway... It's very weird. You're right. Count Leon is our actual male lead. And Count Leon kind of wines and dines the three guys from Russia and convinces them it's in their best interest to just do a 50-50 split on the jewelry. And they send this... Really, he sends this telegram back because they're drunk enough that they let him do it. Right. To Russia that gets an agent sent to be like, what the fuck are you doing? And that agent is Greta Garbo, who actually genuinely believes in Bolshevism and actually knows what she's doing, like is competent at her job. And immediately is like, why did you just trust this guy's word and not hire a lawyer? We're going to hire the best lawyer we possibly can. Why are you in the royal suite? And I'm going to tour all of Paris to try and find the best infrastructure that they have in Paris so that we can rip it off and have it in Russia. And she plays this extremely buttoned up, extremely cold, extremely rigid character to the absolute hilt, and yet is somehow still sympathetic even before this exterior melts. And that is an extremely fine line to walk because she's essentially playing the sort of woman that we will see in later movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or I can't believe I'm talking about Harry Potter again because I'm not one of those people, but like Dolores Umbridge. I also think of, to me as a huge nerd, Nurse Ratchet's other famous part, which is Kai Wynn on DS9, which is the exact same part. Just somebody so buttoned up and sure of themselves that they're an absolute moral monster. Completely a true believer in the system to the point of absurdity, but somehow Nanachka is not a monster even as she is a true believer. And she does make a number of comments about how, you know, capitalism is on the way out, that the workers are going to rise up and they should enjoy their last days of decadence because the revolution is coming. But she does not threaten physical violence of her own. No. Which I think was a smart move and is the reason for that. But there's not even a feeling of like, oh my gosh, she's so naive to believe all of this. No. And I think there's a thing where like, I really want to give Garbo a lot of credit for that because I think in the text, it's a little bit hazier. In the text... I think there is some signs that we're pulling out from having her be naive on this thing, but also like capitalism wins in the end and that like the famous three sentence pitch of this movie, because it got made off of three sentences, ends with capitalism not so bad after all. And like that is the explicit end of this film, but we're going to get into how like kind of weird that feels And I think because of Garbo, that that 
isn't quite the feeling you get at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, it is much more complicated in a way that is positive, I think, than capitalism wins in the end. She goes and she wants to see the Eiffel Tower and ends up on the way there meeting up with Count Leon, the count that isn't a waiter. <laughs> And the two of them have kind of a meet cute where she threatens to kill him as part of the bourgeoisie, <laughs> like you do. I actually wrote down some of these lines because they're so great. So she is looking at a map and is trying to determine where she is and where the Eiffel Tower is. And he shows her this on the map and he says something to the effect of, you know, oh, well, I could uh, I could take you there or I could. Um, I don't know what it is. He says he says something. But she says, I'm only interested in the shortest distance between two points. Must you flirt? And he says, it comes naturally. And she says, suppress it. (laughs) She is great in this sequence. There's this thing where I think she's playing it great, but the text wants her to be more robotic than she is. Like he keeps talking about how analytical she is and how like she needs to just trust in the emotionality of things. And it's like, that is not her problem, my dude. Yeah, she's not robotic. She's annoyed. (laughs) Yeah. But they, because she thinks he's hot, basically, and just is very open about that, they end up going back to his place and having this, like, quasi-romantic, quasi-antagonistic evening that is going to end with them hooking up. But then he figures out that she is the Russian agent come to negotiate about the jewels, and she figures out that he is the guy that almost conned Russia out of, like, 50% of what they were going to make from this set of jewelry. And she breaks it off. He kind of, like, tries to make an argument for, like, let's keep our professional and personal lives separate. And that does not fly, and she leaves. Mostly so we can have a whole act two of them courting each other because that kind of works better than them together. And his next move in courting her is to stalk her to a restaurant that she finds out about the restaurant because she stops a cab driver outside the hotel and says, you know, I need a restaurant. And he suggests some place that's obviously quite fancy. And she says, where do you eat? And he says, well, it's this place but you don't want to go there. She's like, I want to go there. I want to go to where the workers eat. So she goes to this little hole in the wall restaurant, which actually still seems to, I mean, it's Paris. So like, it's probably still great. And she goes in and sits down and the waiter comes over and says, what would you like to eat? And she says, raw beets and carrots. And the waiter says, oh, well, we don't have that and brings her a menu. And then, of course, Leon shows up and acts as if he goes here all the time. And the proprietor of the restaurant says, oh, it's so nice to have a new person here. And he says, oh, uh, he's getting old. His memory is not so good. He keeps telling her she needs to smile. Which just made me want to slap him in the face and tries to tell her funny stories, none of which are really that funny. But then he does tell one. He's like, this one's hilarious. Everybody I've ever told the story laughs at it. And he tells the story and the whole restaurant laughs except for Nanachka. And then he gets really frustrated and is like, you didn't get it if you thought it wasn't funny and tries to explain it and gets totally tongue tied and then fully falls out of his chair onto the floor, at which point she laughs uproariously and frankly so did i because he should fall on the floor because he's being a creep yeah somehow that wins her over though i was about to say and then the problem is jump cut to her being like totally in love with him 
There's some interesting stuff in them being in love with each other. Him having red marks is kind of a funny scene, mostly because he has this servant. And instead of reading marks and becoming more supportive of the underclass, he just yells at his servant that he should be more of a revolutionary and that he's a reactionary for being his servant. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Which is a good bit. And Greta Garbo gets to do a lot of like fun drunk acting in this scene where they have dinner together, where the countess comes over, or the duchess, sorry. So, so, there's too many counts. I think there's like... There should be either one or five counts and not two. That's absurd. <laughs> the Grand Duchess is also dining there and comes over and they have a really great exchange. Yeah. Nanashka and the Grand Duchess. And I particularly liked the bit where it's right at the beginning of their battle of wits where the Grand Duchess looks at her dress, which is very high fashion evening gown and says, oh, is that what they're wearing in Moscow these days? And Greta Carbo says... Last year. <laughs> and it's just great. It is a good sequence that then goes into a very fun drunk sequence that then goes into kind of this weird plot thing where they have gotten so drunk they get the jewelry out of the safe in the hotel suite and put it on Nanachka so that it can be stolen, basically. Oh, before they leave the restaurant, though, is probably my favorite little moment in the movie, where she goes into the bathroom, and someone comes over a few minutes later to the table and says to Leon, you've got to go in and get her, because she is speaking Bolshevik propaganda in the washroom, and the washroom attendants are threatening to strike. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really lovely because she is becoming more comfortable with being in this capitalist atmosphere and being in this very decadent capitalist atmosphere because she's hanging out with the upper class of Paris and dressing in fine evening wear. But she's still going in and telling the workers that they need to revolt. So the seduction is and remains incomplete throughout the whole movie. Right. I think this is our first female Ernst Lubitsch protagonist that's good at her job. Yes. All the rest of them are utterly helpless without the man in their life. They have some basic deficiency and just, like, can't function. I don't think any of the other Ernst Lubitsch protagonists we've ever seen have had jobs unless you consider Queen a job, which, like, it is, but it's also just a title. Right. This is why we like the second love interest in that one Ernst Lubitsch way better, where, like, she was good at being a musician in a beer garden. Like, she was good at her thing that she did. Right. But that all the other female protagonists have, insofar as they've had some life outside of the male lead, the lesson has been, like, shut that down. <laughs> Don't do that anymore. The fact that you can do that is something that's, like, wrong with you. <laughs> yeah, don't be such a good queen because it's emasculating. <laughs> this movie kind of wants to do that, but, like, it never quite manages it. Nanachka is still good enough at her job that even ranting drunk in, like, presumably in a bathroom stall, the bathroom attendants are still like, this lady's making a lot of sense. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. But because they are drunk, they get the jewelry out, and that means that the Grand Duchess can have it stolen 
by the count that is also a waiter. She then gives Nanachka an ultimatum that she could drag this out in court and probably eventually get the jewels back, but a lot of people in Russia would die before that happened because the Grand Duchess to this movie's credit, is a real piece of shit. She is, but I also want to say that she is a piece of shit in an unusual for a Lubitsch film way. She's very capable. She is absolutely a monster, and she is, like, capitalism personified, and she acts flighty, but she's quite conniving. Yeah. And not in a, like, conniving so that I can sleep with your husband way. Really, the only thing she is wrong about is her belief that our male lead is fundamentally lazy enough that he won't do the incredibly hard thing he has to do in Act 3, which, we'll get to it, I kind of wish we got to see him do that more instead of get told he did it. Right. But the ultimatum is that rather than having to drag this out in court... She will return the jewels and let Moscow get that money, but only if Nanachka immediately leaves for Moscow so that the Grand Duchess can have Count Leon back. Because they were dating, but now he's in love with Nanachka. Nanachka, because she feels a duty to country, and also because the Grand Duchess is literally ransoming the lives of thousands. Millions. She is a monster. (laughs) Yeah. Easily hundreds of thousands, potentially millions, good God, goes back to Russia. And there is this very sort of fun interlude. I mean, I say fun in that it is funny, but it is not fun for any of the characters, where you see Nanachka's life back in Moscow, and she... And the three comrades from Act One, Ironoff, whatever. The Marx Brothers. Yeah, the Marx Brothers are all getting together to have an omelet party where they get to eat one omelet because they're pooling all their eggs. And you see her two roommates who are, I think she's a flautist in the, the symphony? She's a cellist. She's a cellist. I got it confused with a bit on uh, the podcast Super Ego. (laughs) And a streetcar driver is the other one, right? Yes. Although I don't think she has any dialogue. She just comes in in a streetcar driver outfit and lays down in her bed in the middle of the party. And you're like, yeah, that's all you need. That's great. And then they have a neighbor they share a bathroom with, but the neighbor has to go through their entire room to get to the bathroom. And they're not sure if he is like just grumpy and silent or if he's like watching them for the secret police. Because Stalinist Russia, yeah. it's a coin flip. The first scene that we see before the dinner party, when we see them back in the USSR, is a big parade for Stalin and his picture is everywhere and it's on banners and everything else. And for me, I don't know if this actually would have had the same effect in 1939 because, I mean, at this point, the USSR is not really that old. But from this perspective, for me, that's like, okay, this is a criticism of Stalinism and not necessarily of communism. Yeah, I think that the movie is kind of at pains to not make fun of the idea of pooling resources. Like, I think there's only one joke I can think of that really tries to make a joke about the underlying concept of communism. And I think it's kind of a hacky joke because it's the one where the servant goes like, I wouldn't want to pull resources with you, says this to the count who clearly has more money than him and goes like, I wouldn't want to give you half of what I had. 
which is like this hacky joke about how like the working class is too stupid to understand that people have more money than they do. Or it's a joke about the fact that Count Leon is, and I took it that he was, kind of poor aristocracy. That his involvement with the Grand Duchess is that she's paying for his upkeep. Because he's constantly trying to get money from people and like, he seems like a schemer. You're right. That scene is maybe the only scene where he doesn't do that is probably why he didn't put that together. But you're right. And that's a much better joke. The joke that the servant is like, I actually have more money and this is just a scheme to get money out of me (laughs) is a pretty good bet. Anyway, this thing has a bunch of jokes or at least sort of little clever commentaries on Stalinist Russia, but all of them are very clearly about the failings of Stalinism, particularly. Right. Not communism writ large. After the scene, the only real like emotional groundwork being laid here is the three Marx Brothers guys saying that they really miss Paris. And Nanachka kind of saying like, no, that's not the party line. We have to believe in what we're doing here and believe that we're going to be able to build a better world. But also clearly like fucking she misses Paris too. Like, and she misses Leon particularly. I think there's a really beautiful moment here actually. And again, this is so to Garbo's credit because she manages to give this very ambivalent delivery on these lines where obviously she misses Paris and she receives a letter during the dinner party from Leon that all of it is redacted except for my darling and yours, Leon. Yeah. And it's two pages long. But her response to this when they say that, you know, oh, don't you miss Paris? It does feel like she actually has some real sympathy and real love for her homeland and does actually believe in the work of communism But that she misses Leon and she also misses like wearing a fancy dress and having a silly hat. The conflict there is very alive in her. And it could very easily have been played as I'm just repeating the party line or that she like really doesn't miss Paris because she's such a true believer and her performance gives us so many layers. There's also this lovely moment in this where the roommate in the symphony kind of warns her about the fact that other people in the building have found her slip from when she was in Paris and had this fancy slip. It is fancy enough that she could get in trouble for it. And that in itself is kind of this nice little commentary, but it's the actual like little button to that scene where the roommate goes, hey, me and my fiance are planning to go get married. And without even needing to actually fully ask her, Nanachka just gives it to her. And I think it's this lovely moment, both of saying what Nanachka is missing and being ambivalent about isn't actually capitalism seduced her with fancy things. And it's also so clear about like what part of communism Nanachka believes in. Yeah, you have a need for this thing. I don't. It's yours. Like, I care about you and you can make use of this thing. It's just a thing to me. Yeah, what she misses about Paris is not objects, it's Leon, really. Yeah. And I think to an extent also a level of freedom that she doesn't have in the USSR, but not to the point of, oh, we're so oppressed here and everything is so bad. When she talks about how there's only the two of them that share that room, she does seem to genuinely feel as if she has a level of privilege within the structure she lives in. Yeah. What I'm realizing as we go through the plot is this is a movie of lovely moments and I hate the through line. (laughs) 
We keep like avoiding the through line, but the through line is after that section, she gets sent to Constantinople by Bella Lugosi in a very distracting cameo. <laughs> There's literally no other way for there to be a Bella Lugosi cameo. Right, but it's still very strange. And she gets sent to Constantinople for the same reason she got sent to Paris, which is that the the Marx brothers have been seduced by capitalism in about five minutes and are like drunkenly carousing around Constantinople when they're supposed to be trying to sell furs. My favorite bit of that is Bella Lugosi completely a straight face saying, they got drunk and threw a rug out of the hotel window and then complained to the hotel staff that it didn't fly. (laughs) (laughs) Which was just, ah, perfect. I love it whenever, this is an incredibly specific bit that gets me every time, but I love bits like that where, well, now I don't need that scene. Like that entire scene is fully in my head now. Yeah, I know exactly (laughs) what is happening in Constantinople. Thank you. Right. She kind of almost borderline begs not to be sent to Constantinople because... She can't say this out loud, but she kind of like doesn't want to deal with the pressure of having that freedom, having that world outside of Russia bombarding her again, if she can't really have it, if she's got to do that and then come back to Russia. And if she's got to do that without Leon. Right. Which, interjection, there is a scene before all of this where Leon tries to go to a USSR travel bureau in Paris to get a visa to go and visit Ninochka, and it does not go well. He is denied the visa because the travel agent is like, no, you're going to go over there and spread capitalistic propaganda. Then he punches the guy in the nose. Yeah, it's fine. Like, there's a couple of good bits in there. It's mostly just to, like, make it clear that Leon isn't just sitting there after Ninochka leaves, which would make you hate him. But we then, at the very end of the movie, we get to Constantinople. The Marx Brothers are very clearly like, we're just never going fucking back. Like, what? Like our mistake last time was we went back. And they've opened a restaurant. Yes, and Nanachka's like, well, who put all these ideas in your head? And who gave you money for a restaurant? And the answer is, of course, Leon, who is waiting out on the balcony and insists that she stay with him and stay out of Russia. And she kind of starts to protest and he just says he will keep doing this forever. Like he will keep going around to people who are from Russia and screwing up their mission until she gets called out to see him. And so her patriotic duty is to stay with him so he won't keep doing that. Right. So the resources of the entire nation are not strained in her going around fixing all of this shit that he's going to stir up. And he also calls her comrade, which was really sweet. Yeah. Again, like, I think the on text idea here is that, like, capitalism has won. He has played his trump card and she must bend to it, but it is weirdly the most a male protagonist in an Ernst Lubitsch film has ever bent to the woman. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I think my main complaint about it is, like, this is such an interesting idea and such an interesting way for him to be fighting for her that I want to see it. I don't want to be told that he had this idea and did it. I wish I got to watch him come up with that idea after leaving the travel agency and, like, work to put it into action, you know? 
Not that I don't like the stuff back in Moscow. I just want to see him fight for her instead of being told that finally a male protagonist fought for the female protagonist. Yeah, there's almost like a whole other potential movie here where he does end up having to do it a number of times before it all works out. Yeah. And the humor in that could have been really, really great. But I'm, I mean, I'm not super bothered by it, but I get it. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Like, there's definitely a good scene there for an entirely additional movie. Yeah, I don't think it, like, derails the film or anything. I just was, like, so excited we got to a moral I didn't find repugnant that I was like, do more! More, please, God. And the thing that I really like about the way that he has worked for her, in a way he has bent for her, is that his plan to get her back, even though it sounds like a justification, it really would put a tremendous strain on the USSR to have him go and interfere in all of their international trade and have her sent out every time in order to fix it. So he is not only giving her the thing that she wants and is torn about which is this relationship with him but he's also giving her the other thing that is the reason that she's torn which is supporting or at least not depleting the resources of the ussr so it's actually really sweet yeah in a very fucking weird international incident way yeah This is sort of what I was saying about not knowing how I would feel about the end of the movie if it weren't an Ernst Lubitsch movie. I think it's a sweet ending, but I also think a little bit we might be grading it on a curve of Ernst Lubitsch because there is a jerky quality to this resolution from him. He is like promising to make her life worse until he gets what he wants. But it is also, I think, to Garbo's credit, it doesn't play that way at all because it is played so clearly as it is also what she wants. And I think they set the groundwork for that with the USSR scenes. I think that's true. Like, I don't think it comes out of nowhere and is totally unearned, but I do also think, like, this could be just another fucking Ernst Lubitsch movie so easily. (laughs) So few things have to go wrong for that ending to play very differently. (laughs) And then there's an additional scene that is totally unnecessary as a coda, where Kapalski is in a sandwich board protesting the Aronoff and Bolzhenov restaurant where his name is no longer lit on the sign. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah. To me, it's like, that isn't even quite their bit, right? Like, that isn't actually quite the game of those three guys. Yeah, they haven't just been waiting to oust him the whole time. Right, and the way that their kind of fair-weather Bolsheviks doesn't quite line up with that. Like, it isn't they just want to protest anything that inconveniences them. Right. It's that they are kind of willing to take ideological shortcuts if it conveniences them. Yeah. (laughs) They just needed a button, and it wasn't a very good one. (laughs) No, I feel like their kiss with the balcony in the background in the beautiful Constantinople apartment would have been just fine. For sure. I think, though, that they wanted to, like, drive home. Also, this was a comedy. Remember, jokes? Just end on the romance. That's fine. Yeah, so what you were saying about the through line, about how this is a movie of a lot of really lovely bits, but the through line is problematic. For me, this was the first Lubitsch film where I hated our male lead in the second act, but he was redeemed in the third. Because usually I hate him by the second act, 
And then I wish death on him by the third. (laughs) Right, because then the third act is about doubling down and how all the women need to accommodate him. Yeah. And in this case, that didn't happen. But I really, really hate the courting scenes with Leon in the second act where he is, I mean, he's outright stalking her and she has told him repeatedly in no uncertain terms because that Nanochka doesn't do uncertain That she's not interested and wants to be left alone. I think that's kind of the problem is like the romance resolves fine, but like I don't really buy their romance. And that's with Greta Garbo doing the Lord's work, doing so much to try and sell that romance. It's just like, who him? Is he funny or something? Oh, no, he's not. He just fell out of a chair. I do not understand why they have this grand romance Except that Greta Garbo's really fucking good. And so it still kind of plays. Yeah, I mean, they go to the Eiffel Tower and she goes back to his place and she has been totally ice cold to him. And he's like, I'm falling in love with you, Nanachka. And it's like, you guys have hung out for two hours in which she has been bothered by you the entire time. Uh, What are you talking about, dude? Uh, To be fair, him being obsessed with that makes a lot of sense to me. (laughs) It's the part where she then turns around and goes like, uh, maybe we should bone, I guess. Then I'm like, wait, what? Why? Well, she does say that (laughs) chemically they are compatible or something like that. Like, yeah, you're attractive, so I guess we should have sex. Yeah. But she's not like, I'm in love with you. Right. And then the only reason she's in love with him is this weird scene where he stalks her and then ineffectively tries to tell several jokes. Right, and then falls out of a chair, which is apparently the most endearing thing anyone could ever do. Right. Which, like, to be fair, if he fell out of a chair while doing something that was previously endearing, that show of vulnerability is actually quite sweet, but he was harassing her. Yeah, it's very, I mean, it's strange. And it's very Ernst Lubitsch, and it very nearly derails the film, and I think with, like, a less talented lead than Greta Garbo, it would have. Yeah. Uh, should we rate this movie, though? Yes. I'm going to have a hard time doing that. (laughs) I also am going to have a hard time doing that. I'm I'm feeling I'm just like I'm I'm feeling something in the six to seven range. Yeah, I think I'm going to I think I'm going to go. I think I'm going to go with a six and that's really, really docking it for the second act because the other two are so strong that it brings it up. But I don't feel comfortable giving it a seven because there is a stalking as romance plot act if not entire plot. Right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And it's also kind of docking some points for like, this is still an Ernst Lubitsch movie. Like it's our best Ernst Lubitsch movie, but it still does that same two-step of like, God, this is so good. I hope it isn't derailed with fuck, of course. God damn it. (laughs) Like it gets back on track in a way he hasn't before. And it was 40 minutes in before I was like, oh, oh, no, I hate this. Instead of 15 to 20. Right. But, like, it still has that same core problem of, like, just assuming this guy should be able to hook up with Greta Garbo. Right. And, like, whatever. Uh, So, like, yeah, I think six. Should you watch this movie? I think this is going to be the first time that I'm going to recommend that you should watch a movie that I've given a score this low. Because I think Greta Garbo is fucking fantastic in this movie. She's really good. And it deserves to be seen for that reason. And there's a lot of really funny lines, 
And most of the funny lines are actually taking down the guy instead of the guy, like, giving shit to a woman. And also, as kind of this theme of, in recent episodes, me giving the audience homework, I would love it if somebody who took our advice and hasn't ever seen an Ernst Lubitsch film before in their life watches this movie to tell me how it plays. (laughs) Yeah, if anyone has never seen an Ernst Lubitsch film, let this be the only one that you see. <laughs> yeah, and like, tell me if you think the last act is anything. <laughs> right, does it actually redeem the second act problem? Also, this is, I think, the first time I would recommend someone should remake this film. Oh, absolutely. God, I would watch this in a minute. Yeah, where the second act is actually him doing things that are charming and romantic and at all seductive to a person so that their love story feels organic, because then the rest of the movie is really good. Yeah, the, like, class comedy stuff in here, like, I think it would really, I mean, it does really play now still. I think really leaning into that would work really well. For once, I think Hollywood could cast ScarJo as the lead and no one would get angry. Oh, fuck no. (laughs) I'm mostly kidding. It's mostly... She does not have the chops, I'm sorry. Like, she's good at being monotone. She is not my ideal casting in any way. I'm mostly just joking about how they want to cast it for everyone, and at least it would be not the single most ridiculous casting on the face of the earth. They could make her the Grand Duchess. I'd be okay with that. Fuck, they totally should. And she'd be good at it. She would never take it. It's too small a part, but it would be, she'd be great at that. Yeah. Honestly, like, it's, it's, uh, 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 fucking, um, why am I blanking on her name? She's like one of the most famous women on earth. And all I can think of is Queen Abadala from Star Wars, which is like her worst part. Oh, Natalie Portman? Yeah. Natalie Portman could do a good Nanachka. Mm, see, I, I think that the other Natalie Portman would actually be a better choice. I think Kira Knightley has the better acting chops. Interesting. I get, hmm, I get both. <laughs> well, I mean, they do look identical, so... <laughs> well, but it's also that, like, the difference between them is, like... The two sides of Nanachka, right? Like, do you care about being able to play that severity? Or do you care about being able to play the thing underneath it? The sweetness. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I I think Keira Knightley can pull off sweetness and vulnerability. I do too. I just think that their stat points are assigned slightly differently on those two things. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then just whoever can play the male lead. I mean, who gives a fuck? (laughs) Uh, <laughs> Tom Hiddleston oh. was designed for this part. <laughs> Fuck, you're totally right. <laughs> like in a lab. <laughs> Though if you wanted to cast this movie older, this would be an interesting, like, Hugh Laurie hasn't had a lead part in a while. Oh, wow. You really wouldn't have to work hard at fixing the second act in that case. <laughs> yeah. Because it's like... Oh, yeah, I will 100% take off my clothes for this person, sure. (laughs) (laughs) And also, specifically just because he fell out of a chair. (laughs) Yeah, also that. (laughs) That would work. That would be the funniest thing on Earth, is just watching Hugh Laurie fail to tell jokes for five minutes and then fall out of a chair. I would be (laughs) like, yeah, I will have sex with that. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah, it it would actually work for Hiddleston and for Hugh Laurie, but in... Totally different ways. Yes. Like in Hiddleston's case, I would be like, yeah, fall out of that chair, lol. And then for Hugh Laurie, I would be like, oh, wow, look, a moment of vulnerability from someone who otherwise has none. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, 
Yeah. So next week. Next week, we are watching all 18 and a half hours of Gone with the Wind. <laughs> yeah, speaking of problematic movies. Yeah. So tune in next week for that. I, don't, I, I honestly don't know how this is going to go. You have a better idea because you've seen it, but we have been talking about it for... 90 episodes almost right you know i have to say my fear is like we come back and say it works because like the last time i watched this i was like 12 and growing up in newt gingrich's district and about as woke as one could be given those things and i fucking loved this movie because i was not in any way (laughs) understanding the like underlying problems with it And, like, I am kind of fascinated to watch the, like, technical proficiencies of this film go to war with the, dear God, this movie of this film. Yeah, I mean, that's, I'm always excited about those. Yeah. Because that's really what the project was made for, right? Yeah. Oh, it was a technical marvel for the time, but, like, does it stand up to the screen test of time? So... Tune in next week to find out. And until then, this was our last Ernst Lubitsch film ever. Oh, thank God. Thank God. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. I'm so happy. Oh, I'm so happy. No one can be so happy without being punished. I will be punished and I should be punished. Leon, I want to confess. I know. It's a Russian soul. Well, everyone wants to confess, and if they don't confess, they make them confess. I am a traitor. When I kissed you, I betrayed a Russian ideal. I should be stood up against the wall. Will that make you any happier? Much happier.